This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Cardinal Ratzinger was a significant man in Roman Catholicism even before he became Pope Benedict. And with his recent passing, it's interesting to reflect on a very fruitful life and uh, some details of his life that people may not be readily familiar with. How good were the obituaries for Pope Benedict XVI? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Many in the media have portrayed Pope Benedict as a man locked in the past. Is that true? In several senses of the words, that's true. It depends on what you mean by locked. What I think is fascinating about him, if you look back, I mean, he lived a very long life. And if you look back at some of the very first things that he said and did, I mean, we're talking 50s, 60s, I would call him someone who became a very traditional Catholic, yet was obsessed with what was going to happen to the church in the future. I think the essential point our listeners need to know about this man is he did not believe that the future of the Catholic Church would be helped by compromising with the modern world, with modernity. I think instead he thought that you should debate the world of modernity. And I also think it's very important to remember that this is a man who, from coming out of the, literally growing up as a child in the Nazi era of Germany, and then a man who became an intellectual giant in the context of European Catholicism, which for the most part tends to be liberal and progressive. I mean, he literally, the ultimate liberal Catholic theologian, Hans Kung helped Benedict get his first major job as a theologian, yet the two of them then clashed for the rest of their lives. So to some degree, this was a man, I've been struggling how to sum up in a clear image for people to understand what's going on here, because it's a very complex subject. I was looking at a, a conservative kind of listserv that puts out URLs to things that people should read. And they looked at like just the first two or three days of the coverage of his death. And they put out a list that basically was, here are the 70 must-read stories about the death of Benedict the Sixteenth. Here are the 70. Here, just breeze through them. I mean, that's a, a size of some of the arguments that surround this man and his life that their short list of things you needed to read was like 70 URLs long after two days. So back to trying to sum it up, I think it's very important to realize that this was a very European man who had rejected what has happened to modern Europe. And I think that's at the heart of 
much of the of the tension about him and the fighting about him and what he meant. Whereas, ironically, Pope Francis is someone that people think of as being from the global south, being from Latin America, etc. But culturally, Francis is seems much more European. If you're looking at European in the sense of today's Italy and today's European Union approach to Europe, Francis seems at tension with some of what's going on in Europe, but very comfortable talking to it and dialoguing with it. And that's this whole synod of synodality and whether or not they will ultimately reign in the Church of Germany, which, you know, is advocating the ordination of women, same-sex marriage rights, and a host of other stuff. Well, okay, who was from Germany? Benedict. Benedict Sixteenth. Who is considered the archenemy of the Europeans now best symbolized by the liberal German church? Benedict. So he's a very European man who had rejected where Europe was going. And he seemed to be, from his priesthood to being a bishop, being a theologian, to becoming a cardinal, the chief theolog theological mind behind Pope John Paul II's team, his staff, he had rejected where Europe was going. And he even predicted that the church was about to enter a period of time of rapid decline and that it would only survive and would be smaller but stronger. That was his vision. Smaller but stronger by holding fast to the traditional doctrines of Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church. And that put him at a direct loggerheads with the European theological establishment. And by when you talk about the establishment of modern Europe, I think to some degree you're talking about the establishment minds then of power in blue zip code America, which seems to admire Europe more than any other section of the world, quite frankly. So the, see, do you see the irony there? So you have a, a, a man who grew up in Europe, who's rejected Europe, and who appointed many Africans and Asians, conservative Africans and Asians, to roles of leadership in his papacy. Then you have a man who is viewed as being from the global south and Latin America, who actually seems more comfortable with the Europe of today and the Italy of today. So all kinds of contradictions in that, but boy, oh boy, is this a complex story to dig into. And I think we need to talk about what readers should be looking for in the obits as they try to understand this man. How would you compare and contrast the secular news media's coverage of the life and death of Benedict with that of the Catholic press? Well, of course, you expect far more detail in the Catholic press, and you get it. But the main thing you're going to get is the Catholic press is going to admit that Benedict was primarily a theologian, and they're going to critique him as a theologian who then kind of wrestled and struggled with the world of Catholic actions and power 
whereas some in the secular press, not all, but some, are going to view him the way they view any pope. His actions are important to the degree that they affect politics, and they affect kind of the structures of the real world. And you don't do that through theology, you do that through actions. And the fact that he thought there were theological ideas that were permanent, thus makes him locked in the past, where as opposed to him thinking, no, the doctrines and the centuries and centuries of our church's traditions is the answer to the future, not something that we need to turn around and run back to. We need to take those truths and apply them to the modern world. I was very surprised, quite frankly, to read two radically different stories about this man in the New York Times. And the actual obituary of Benedict in the New York Times, I think, quite frankly, is very strong and deals very much with the ideas and the issues and the big concepts that were at the heart of this man's life and wrestles with them quite well. I was very surprised as I went through it. I kept marking things all the way through it that I thought, well, that's a good summary of that, a good summary of that. Then they ran a piece with a radically different approach, and the headline on that puts it right in the context of, of, of where I don't think you need to go with this. For conservative Catholics in the United States, Pope Benedict's death is the loss of a hero. Well, that's accurate. But that also seems to assume that the way you judge the importance of this man is by looking at him in the context of current Catholic struggles and fights here in America. You, you end up with a question that can be boiled down to, a lot of people tried to say, the last 10 years, are we been dealing with Benedict versus Pope Francis? And that, I think that's a perfectly worthwhile debate to have. But some people want to turn it into Benedict versus Joe Biden or the friends of Benedict versus Joe Biden and the friends of Pope Francis. And while there might be some truth to that and there are ways to look at it, you look at the people from the United States and elsewhere in the world that Pope Francis has chosen to raise as cardinals, Look at the men wearing red hats under Francis, and it's a radically different group of people than you had seen given red hats by Pope Benedict. And in the late period of John Paul II, where Benedict played such a major role behind the scenes as Pope John Paul II's health declined, I just don't think that with his death, if you're going to try to understand what was going on here, that looking at it through the lens of American politics is necessarily the wisest course of journalism action. Terry, before we talk about the AP obituary, there are some passages that you really liked in the New York Times coverage. Yeah, I think this is a part of trying to come up with the essentials. What do you need to see in an obit of Benedict the Sixteenth? And I think one of the crucial things was when John Paul II died, before they went into the Sistine Chapel to elect a new pope, there was a gathering of the cardinals, and Cardinal Ratzinger addressed that body. And I would say that 
that's one of the two to three pivotal moments and speeches in the career of this man, especially if you want to understand him as Pope. And our listeners can take a very short phrase, a three-word phrase, and search for coverage of Benedict. And if this phrase is there and it's put in context as of that event and the timing of that event, then you know you've got a reporter that knows something about it. So let me read just a, a brief section of the New York Times. I mean, literally just two paragraphs. Cardinal Ratzinger delivered his answer. And this is, once again, what should the future look like? Where should the church go? Cardinal Ratzinger delivered his answer just before the papal conclave. The cardinals closed meeting in the Sistine Chapel to select a new pope. In a speech that was said to have stunned many of those present, he asserted that, quote, and here's the quote, a dictatorship of relativism, unquote, had taken hold of the modern world, one that, quote, recognizes nothing definitive and leaves only one's own ego and one's own desires as the final measure, unquote. And, of course, he means measure of truth. An aide called it a hold-on-to-your-hats moment. Cardinal Ratzinger was putting his colleagues on notice that if they chose him, he would make no concessions to the modern secular world. Now, also this ringing affirmation of the concept of transcendent truth also takes you back to Veritas Splendor, the Magna Carta, the key work of the era of John Paul II, and his ringing defense that there is such a thing as absolute eternal truth that cannot be compromised. And it would be hard to come up with a short, punchy statement that more directly contradicts this kind of the spirit of modern Europe. So this comes down to the fact that you have to wrestle when you're reading about Benedict. You have to wrestle with the fact that this was a man who took part in Vatican II. He approved of the changes of Vatican II. He helped write some of them. You know, when you look at his role in it, he was considered a reformer. Yet this was a man who wanted to go to face the future with the actual teachings of Vatican II and the words of Vatican II. And he opposed what many have called the spirit of Vatican II, which was that we were going into some period of reform where things would just keep changing and changing and changing. And this leads to so many of his conflicts with the left in the modern Catholic Church, whether it's about liturgy, this was a man who didn't want to go back to the Latin Mass, but he didn't want to kill the Latin Mass either. He specifically, in one of his most important actions, defended the rights of people to choose the Latin Mass. And there you see a conflict between him and Francis and the followers and the supporters of Francis who saw the Latin Mass as a sign of resistance to Vatican II and as a way of resisting the papacy of Pope Francis, whereas that isn't what Benedict had wanted at all. So once again, Benedict versus Francis. Is that the story here? Well, in your reading about this man, you've got to focus on what he actually said and did about Vatican II. And then you have to look at Francis now and say, 
what does Francis say versus what does Francis do? Because the words of the two men on a lot of issues are not that far apart. What jumps out at you is their actions. Who did they appoint? Who did they bring up to power? How do they deal with dialogue in the church and arguments within the church? And Francis is a Jesuit. He's someone who's very comfortable with a wide-ranging approach to truth and arguments and debates, and the synod of synodality seems to be the spirit of Vatican II put into action. And I think some of its supporters would say that, that Francis and the synod of synodality represents the future, like Vatican III coming at us, the spirit of Vatican II. Whereas you would have to say the key to Benedict is his phrase, the reform of the reform. He was in favor of the reforms of Vatican II, but there were times when you needed to clarify what Vatican II had said and make sure that we don't abuse the reform and we don't take it too far into attacks on the basic doctrines and the bishop worship of the church. So actions versus words. Francis and Benedict, not that far apart on a lot of their words, but yes, look in the coverage for where they have clashed in their actions. The Pope John Paul II Center for Family and Pro-Life Work, etc., is now packed with people who are critical of Benedict and, frankly, critical of Pope John Paul II. Well, that's a pretty big shift in the life of the Church. I have two quick final questions for you, Terry. You found some irony in the Associated Press obituary. What was it? Yeah, the Associated Press obituary was essentially the life of Benedict through the eyes of politics. There were a couple of people quoted toward the end of it that tried to stress theology. This is how this man thought. But the most important thing in the world is the impact of Benedict on American politics and on debates between these angry conservative American bishops who Francis has not given red cardinal hats versus the world of the loving, forgiving, evolving bishops and cardinals who love Pope Francis. So it's, to some degree, the epitome of an obituary about a theologian that didn't want to talk about theology. And as you and I have talked about so many times, the press just doesn't understand that doctrine really matters if you're talking about church structures, church governments, and theology. You just can't avoid doctrine, and you certainly can't avoid doctrine if you're writing about potentially one of the two or three most important Catholic theologians of the last century. Why did he choose Benedict as his name? Well, we're back to that issue about a man who had looked at what was happening in Europe and had rejected it. Now, there are a couple of Benedicts, but I think if you look at other actions that came even after he had stepped down and become Pope Emeritus, I think it's pretty clear that he chose Benedict as a salute to Benedict of Norcia. And this was a person who, as the culture of Europe declined, he set up monasteries and he set up schools to try to preserve the best of Catholicism so that someday it would rise again and help lead the church into a new era. This is the Benedict 
that Rod Dreher has chosen as the Benedict Option. The whole title of that controversial book comes from that. It's also very significant that there was a forum, and Rod has written about this online, and our listeners might want to look it up. There was a forum about the Benedict Option where the chief aide and the assistant to the retired Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus, gave the main presentation, and Rod has printed that entire presentation because someone said that you can rest assured that Benedict himself approved every word of that address. And it was a ringing affirmation of Rod's book and this whole idea that the road to the future of Europe and the world and the Catholic Church is through the strengths of Roman Catholic tradition and its core doctrines and the belief that they are absolute and unchanging and that that's the smaller, stronger church that Benedict prophesied would come and hoped that it would then grow back to become the dominant Catholicism again. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much for your time. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.